Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. My brothers, my sisters, it is your man, the Duke, host of the Duke Loves Wrestling podcast. And I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go to www.strictlyfortheculture.ca. Strictly for the Culture is one of the hottest brands in sports and entertainment today. Come on. You've seen the t-shirts. You've seen the hoodies on folks like Rodney Mack, the Reverend Ron Hunt, Jeremy Prophet, MLW World Champion Alex Kane, Mr. PWI 500, Jay Bougie, even your man, the Duke, and a lot of other podcasters and influencers. So I'll say it once again, www.strictlyfortheculture.ca. Do it for the love, do it for the respect, do it for the honor, but most of all, do it strictly for the culture. Brothers and sisters, on this edition of the Duke Loves Wrestling Podcast, we are going to be joined by Lockjaw, Danny Cruz. He's a former military veteran who is also a pro wrestler and promoter. Danny's going to open up about his incredible life, including some traumas he's experienced. And for that reason, I am going to give this trauma alert here. Danny will be talking about everything from domestic violence to being a survivor of sexual assault. So please bear that in mind as you listen. Uh, But I do feel that this can help save lives. And it's for that reason we have Danny on the show this week. So... Without further ado, let's get on with the show. You're locked in. Look at what we have here, folks. To the only show that matters. The cream of the crop. Duke loves wrestling. And there is no one that does it better than your host. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. The Duke. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Hey, this is Danny Cruz, a.k.a. the Puerto Rican Pitbull, Lockjaw, and you're listening to Duke Loves Wrestling. Brothers and sisters, we have an interesting situation here. Uh, Our guest is someone that, first of all, is one of the coolest guys I've ever interacted with from wrestling. Just a really cool person. But we recorded about a week ago and had a great conversation. But unfortunately, the the audio was kind of spotty. So still trying to figure out what we're going to do with that. So stay tuned. We'll have an update for that in the not too distant future. But ironically, after we recorded, we had a great conversation. And I realized there's a lot of great information that our guests can share that, you know, hopefully can save some lives. I mean, that's how serious and how deep it is. So this is going to go down a very serious path, folks. I want to put that out there. So that's a trigger warning. But, um, you know, we will end on a very positive note nonetheless. So without further ado, I guess welcome back to Duke Loves Wrestling. Danny, oh, yeah. what's going on there, Danny? Another day. Another day, man. Just want to thank you uh, again for having me. Hey, no problem, man. I mean, it's it's interesting because um, you're a guy that's been in the wrestling industry. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. It's been over 10 years now, right? Yeah, a little over 10 years. This year, we'll actually make 11. Great, great. Congratulations on that. So, so you've wrestled, you you, you you promote, you know, as as the my Jamaican uh, family would say, you're the head cook and, and bottle washer, right? You do it all. Right? <laughs> oh, yeah. I do a lot more than people would uh, expect. But yes. And, you know, you look like a wrestler, too. That's one of the, the things that... Is really interesting. I mean, you you got the, the the bald head, the tattoos. You know, you got great size on you. You look like somebody who is a wrestler or, or some kind of MMA fighter, something along those lines. You ever heard that before? I've heard that many times. What's interesting is that I've I've always been a big kid, but obviously, as you get older, like I am now, I've gotten a little bigger. Um, but while I was in my uh, military days you know i didn't have i didn't have the the daddy gut so to speak 
But when I would walk down the street, you know, people would see me and they see my facial uh, expressions. And well, I had a couple on, uh, back in Harlem one time I'm walking by and it was like, you look like a boxer. I'm like, boxer? They was like, yeah, man, I, you know, look at them hands. Like, and I would just laugh like, no, I'm not a bo- I wrestle, <laughs> but I'm not a boxer. So you that was all. Yeah, I mean something within combat, I guess. <laughs> you missed your calling. See, you're doing this wrestling thing. You should have been a boxer. Yeah, you, you could have been Tyson Fury. Come on, man. I mean, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if 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 ever you know there was ever a time, uh, I always thought about it, but then I'm like, ah, I like my teeth. You know, yeah. <laughs> I yeah, like my teeth. teeth. <laughs> you, you want to keep your your head as as. Uh, concussion free as possible and not to Ex- say I mean, exactly know, exactly in wrestling too but in boxing you're guaranteed right you're right because you're i mean the goal is to you know knock somebody out and exactly so it's true it's true so you're a military guy what what uh part of the military and, and listen i know that there may be things you can't say so feel free to say i can't say that and it's okay but uh-huh. uh, what what uh branch of military are you in marines you're in the Marines, yeah. and you you served how many years? Uh, five years. Okay, so you did, what is that? One tour? Uh, just about. I mean, as far as contracts go. But in my in in the five years, I've gone to Africa twice and Iraq. So I was in uh, Senegal, Africa, which is northwest Africa, back in 2007. From September of 08 to April of 09, I was in uh, Al-Assad Air Base in Iraq. And back in 2010, I was in Mozambique, which is South Africa. So I got a lot of African in me. (laughs) Yeah, clearly. Clearly. Man, I'm going to ask you a question that you probably have never been asked before. As crazy Mm -hmm. as it sounds, you're telling me about your military service, which in and of itself, is uh pretty serious but you got to eat so when you weren't eating mres you know how was the food overseas um well when we went to senegal we had to be very careful right because one of the situations was um our our commanders they were basically saying you know when we get over there you know we can't do certain things with the locals um we can't eat what they're eating or how they're eating, you know, cause they would eat with their hands. And mind you, I'm we're it, we went over there as a training, training uh, operation. So we went there to train with their military and, you know, just the, the dynamic, you know, the, 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 the language barrier, because over there they spoke uh, French. So to try to understand them and train with them at the same time was already challenging. Um, but as far as the food goes in Senegal, um, they had this rice, and a lot of the uh, a lot of the, a lot of their military they would they would come you know after training they would have this big metal pan of this orangey red rice. So I didn't get a chance to eat from it, but some of the guys they they had a chance to eat from it. And they said it you know has a, a nice kick to it. It's like uh, like a spice you know a certain spice they had to it. Um, and then when we got to the resort where we was basically stay, uh, where we had to wait for our plane, um, we spent, I think, a day or two at the hotel once all of our training was done. And they had like mousse. They had a lot of snacks. They had a lot of um, like basically French food. And then obviously they, they, they knew that there was a lot of Americans coming. So they try to, you know, uh, cater to the American crowd, knowing that they may not have the same uh, cultural backgrounds. So they would just try to keep it, uh, something that we can all eat. Um, uh, the beer, uh, was definitely different. I can tell you that much. If, if anything, uh, stuck out to us, at least in Senegal was the beer because whatever it was that was, that was in that beer, it had guys delusional. I mean, it was, I, I don't know what was in it because at the time I'm still underage. I couldn't drink. So I would watch the guys who were able to drink and I don't know. They, they, they had a new, uh, 
form of bravery and and like they were superheroes and i would just laugh because whether it was a sergeant whether it was the young private or whatever it was like what the hell is in this beer you know <laughs> um but that experience was uh was a very interesting experience because while while in the midst of training you've had you know you had the language barrier you had the, the different cultures when it came to the food and stuff and then obviously you had the commanders um they're basically telling us like look i know you want to i know you guys want to you know get involved with them and and you know get to learn them their culture and stuff but to avoid any of us getting sick you know we had to get the shots we had to get the uh malaria pills like it was these big blue horse pills that they would give us and they would tell us you know you can't drink any water from the local area ice anything so when it came to the food it was basically mres for us just to keep us safe from getting sick so that that's a, that's a buzzkill man it was yes it was <laughs> so you weren't able to um truly experience that aspect of the culture right um, which is unfortunate. So, but you were there for training. So you were actually training their military over there. Yes, yes. When we got there, it was desert training. You know, so we get there. It's okay. I'm gonna paint this picture for you, and I just want everybody who's listening to know that um, they make the joke about Marines eating crayons and us being uh, jarheads, like basically all muscle and not enough brains. Um, to some extent, there is truth to that, but not to me. However, now, Duke, I'm going to paint this picture for you. It's the middle of July in the U.S., right? So we know July is very hot. <laughs> the logistics uh, officers decided to go to the hottest place on the planet because you figure Northwest Africa is not too far from the equator. And not only did we go to the hottest place in the world at the hottest time of the world, uh, at the hottest time of the year, they had the logistics uh, set up tents for us. Okay. When we get there, the tents are cold weather tents. I'm going to say it again. They were cold weather tents, which means the entire inside of that tent was insulated. So when we get off the plane and we get on this little bus, my, keep in mind, we are in full combat gear because we're in another country. We don't know what to expect. And we get to the staging area of where we were going to be located for the next few weeks. And that bus door opens and it was like a microwave. And we looked at the temperature. I forgot who it was. I think it was one of our captains. He said, right now it's 140 degrees. A hundred, and I didn't know we were in that much heat until we saw one of the locals. He had on a black beanie and a black coat, and we're over here thinking, "Man, this guy's crazy." But we understood afterwards that we were in direct contact of the sun because it's it was so much more intense there. So we're in this a hundred and forty degree heat in july so we get into these tents and it's like okay inside this tent has to at least be 160 and better now if you're a big guy who has you know little extra meat on his bones you're having to now add on to your body heat from your own body we had guys wake up in in sweat prints <laughs> they would leave prints of their own sweat on the on the inside of these tents and the cots. And it was, it was, it was funny. And it was crazy at the same time, because it was like, who put these guys in charge of the logistics? They obviously didn't get the memo that July in New York is already 90 to a hundred degrees. Uh, I don't know what they thought they were getting into going into Northwest Africa and expecting it to be anything cooler. As a matter of fact, the coldest that it got, at night, I would say is about 85 to 90 degrees. So you go from 140 degrees in the desert to 80 to 90 degrees at night. 80 to 90 degrees over there felt pretty chilly. 
it would have felt like a New York, Boston, 60, 70 degrees. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. So, yeah. That's what we had to deal with. That is that is absolutely crazy. Listen, no one could ever tell you anything about uh, performing outdoors at wrestling events after that, huh? No, no, no. Because <laughs> I, I, I hear people all the time, oh, it's hot. I'm like, you don't know what hot is. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> you don't, no not even a little bit. You know, and um, we would uh, we would set up our, our guns because what my my job was, I was mortars, which is basically like a small arms artillery. So we basically did a lot of uh, long distance firing. So we had to dig up the mortar pits to stage these weapons in place. And again, 140 degree heat. We're in full gear. And we had the little E-tool. For those who served in the military, you know what the E-tool is. It's this six to nine inch uh, shovel that we packed. And we would dig these big mortar pits with this little shovel. So uh, it basically made double the work. Um, And again, 140 degrees, red sand, dirt. We're drenched in sweat. And what's what's interesting was that there was a point in time where one of the military from there, the the Senegalese army, they was like, it's hot. And we just looked at him like, dude, you live here. (laughs) If if they're saying they're hot and they live here, could you imagine what we feel? Mm. For four hours, we had to take a break from training because from 12, from noon till about 4, 430. We couldn't fire. We couldn't do any live fire training because we didn't want to run the risk of melting the barrels. Because what tends to happen is, is with that type of heat, you melt the barrels. Now the gun not only jams, but the round that's still inside could explode and the whole gun is destroyed at that point. So we got a four hour break, but after 140 degrees, it's, it's still nothing. It's still hot. <laughs> Having to do literally a life and death uh, job in conditions like that, weather conditions like that, that's that's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of, um, you know, it, it, it weighs on you. That's oh, taxing yeah. because you're distracted by all these other things that, that really have nothing to do with the reason why you're there. Right. So it's just added, you know, frustration and pressure and what have you. But you're doing it alongside so many other different types of people, you know, people from all over the country. You're in somebody else's country. Right. And you're training them. So you're having to work together with them as well. How did that affect your ability going forward to be able to work together with different types of people? I mean, because you can only go one or two ways there. Either that just completely turns you off and you, you can't stand people. Right. Or you're somebody who can maintain a diverse circle of people to do business with, friends, et cetera, because it's it's just part of who you are at that point. W- what side do you land on? Uh, well, one thing that we were always trained was to adapt and overcome. Uh, I, I'm not sure about the other branches, um, but when it came to the Marines, we were always told, adapt to your surroundings, whatever it may be. So when it comes to working with different people and different personalities, I don't have an issue. You know, uh, I blend well with people. You know, uh, I understand that, you know, everybody got something that they're dealing with in their personal lives. And, you know, sometimes, especially when it comes to the military, there's times where, you know, we didn't want to be there. Um, sometimes you had guys that were dealing with stuff that they didn't not only just, they they didn't just want to leave the military and not want to be where they were currently in that situation. But a lot of them just didn't want to live anymore. And, you know, it's, it's that in itself is distracting because, you know, we're here for a purpose. Now, obviously there's a lot of people around that don't agree with our purpose and our, you know, mission or whatever the case may be, but that's the job. You know, everyone has a job that they don't like, but at the end of the day, it has to get done. 
So when dealing with different people, different personalities, different backgrounds, different uh, cultural beliefs, political beliefs, I don't have, you know, I, I'm able to s- separate the, the, the personal from the professional, it, you know, if that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. And, and you said something interesting there. Um, everybody is, is, is dealing with their own personal issues. And mm-hmm. that's, that's a very mature take that unfortunately is very difficult for most people to apply. You know, most people, no matter what happens, it's, it's always something happening to them. It's being imposed on them. Right. And it's very easy to slip into that, you know, it's on purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, at work, somebody said something that I didn't like, or they're looking at me the wrong way on the train, or you know what I mean? It's 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 about you. Right. It's this personal thing. Right. Not realizing that in most instances, not half the time, not some of the time, in most instances, people are going through life carrying their own baggage and issues and things that are going on in their world and it, it, it ain't got nothing to do with you. Right. You know, it's just, it is what it is. Now that doesn't mean that you have to put up with everybody's crap, but when you're able to, to front of mind, say to yourself, everyone's coming here with their own thing. Exactly. Suddenly you avoid a lot of conflicts and it, 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 it doesn't have to escalate. To a right. point where next thing you know, you're beating the hell out of somebody, right? Right, right. And that's the thing, too, is that for those of us who have served, you know, there is an understanding that on the civilian side of things, we are still looked at as a, as a weapon. For example, Marines, right? One of the things that people know of is every Marine is a rifleman. So whether you are doing paperwork or you're a grunt out in the field, every Marine is a rifleman. Now, we're the only branch that has that, or at least that I can remember from when I when I first joined, we're the only branch that has every Marine earn that title through the combat training and everyone being uh, proficient in firearms training. So when you come across, you know, Army, Navy, Air Force, whatever, everyone has their own specific job. Like, yeah, you know, I do infantry, I do uh, mechanic work. But at the end of the day, and this is not to just be biased against Marines, but anyone who knows, knows that every Marine is a rifleman. So don't think that the, the, the desk person doesn't know how to, you know, get busy if they need to, you know what I mean? So it's like, never... Um, Never doubt us, never uh, count us out. You know, we earned many titles. And one of those titles is Devil Dog. And we earned that back in World War One against the Germans. And it wasn't because of how, uh, you know, we were on fire and still moving. No, it was it was how we fought. It was the 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 viciousness and in, in style of fighting that uh, earned us that 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 moniker you know and you have people that have said it like a tufa hunden is the is the breed of dog that resonates uh with the term devil dog so a tufa hunden is the bulldog in germany which is known to be more vicious than the american pit bull so going to battle or being a part of a, a branch where they have that kind of legacy whether people agree with it or not People understand that, okay, he's a Marine. He's not like the others. You know, that's why we, we hold ourselves to a higher standard. Now, yeah, we have times in our lives where we slack off on certain things, but when push comes to shove and we have to, and we have no other choice but to turn that switch on, when that switch is on, I mean, it's going to be what it's going to be. And, I try to keep that switch off because I know what I'm capable of from and 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 just a physical uh standpoint uh mentally I know what I'm capable of. If I turn that switch on, 
and I think I've told my family this many times, um, I don't want to get to a place in my life where I have to turn that switch on because, you know, it could be a one-way trip and we're trained to uh, do what we got to do. Uh, mission completion is is number one, you know, so I that's why I try to stay to myself. You know, I try not to uh, engage with too many negative situations because if I ever felt that I needed to go that route, I don't know if there's anyone around that can uh, bring me back at that point. Take me back way before military time, way before pro wrestling, way mm-hmm. before who you are today. You experienced a, a pretty significant trauma as a young person. Mm-hmm. And there's no easy way to get into this. So I'm just going to just jump right in. What happened, Danny? Uh, oof. <laughs> well, I guess we'll start off with uh, mom, you know, because mom has to get her flowers because she survived a lot, you know, even before having me. So our family as, you know, as I say, you know, warrior breed, like, you know, we've, we've been through some things. Um, you know, she was a young mom. Um, she didn't finish school, uh, because she was helping her older sisters raise their kids while in the midst of, uh, taking care of her dying mother. And, um, everybody was out having a good time, you know, brothers, sisters, father, everyone pretty much did what they felt they wanted to do. And, kind of left her hanging. So she had to fend for herself. So she did what pretty much anybody would do at that point, And she chose the streets, you know, um, whether it be doing drugs, selling drugs, gangs, whatever, that was just her upbringing. And, you know, she had me 17 going on 18. And, you know, I'm, you know, fast forward a few years, She's not with my biological father. She's with my uh, my brother's father at the time. And I would witness her being abused, you know, like to be five, six, seven years old and watching it, you know, not just them getting high or whatever, but watching him physically manhandle her. And I remember myself, uh, I don't want to say laughing because it wasn't funny. It was just, I don't know. It was like a weird, uh, oh man, I don't know how to explain it. But you know how when, when you know, because sometimes people cry when they get angry. Some, And it's not because of like, it's just a, a weird emotion. Like some people joke about death or things like that. I don't know. It's just one of those weird emotions that I was having. And, you know, just watching on a consistent basis. So you figure a seven-day week, I would say two or three times a week, I would see or hear. First, it would start off with me hearing the thumps from the other room. And then I'd run in to see what was going on. And I was small. You know, my brothers and sisters, they were smaller than me. And there wasn't a chance to help her. and. You know, I, I remember the the kicks with you know with Timberland boots to the face, to the head, to the her ribs, and this guy was you know six two over two fifty, and mom was like five four, you know, and and she wouldn't back down, but she wouldn't defend herself either because she was more worried about us because she saw when we would run in and try to you know whether it was yell, stop, or whether it was cry, anything that would get him to stop. She wouldn't defend herself. She would take the hits. Till this day, she lives with, I mean, she's riddled with uh, a a fractured skull, fractured ribs. Right now she's battling uh, MS. She's diabetic. Like She's got all kinds of things going on with her. And... There was a point in time, I would say about eight, nine, um, he was that same guy who molested me. And not just me, his own son. Um, 
I would say, was it last year, maybe a couple of years ago, he finally passed. And I didn't tell my mother until we moved from the Bronx to Brooklyn. And this was around 99, around 2000. And she would, uh, she had such anger in her because of that. Like she wanted him dead, you know. And I think what what hurt the most was that we had a lot of family members that were still uh, friends with him. After knowing everything, they would still get drunk with him. They would still, uh, like if they, you know, saw him in the neighborhood or whatever, they would come up to him as if they don't know what happened. So here I am now, uh, I'm like 10, 11 years old, 12 years old, and the cousins I grew up with having a family around me to then hearing about how they're still hanging out with the same guy who not only abused your aunt, but uh, abused your cousins. And you guys were okay with that. So my take with family has always been, you know, fuck the family. Because when push came to shove, you guys were more understanding of what was what actually happened to us. Because I'm nine years old. I'm being exposed to something for the very first time in my life. You know, I didn't grow up seeing that. I mean, I saw the, the drugs and stuff, but the, the sexual stuff, that was taught to me. That was shown to me. I was introduced in a way where you shouldn't be introduced, you know. I didn't have conversations about the birds and the bees. No, the unfortunate truth was I was forced to experience it in a way where most guys today who have had a similar experience um, don't know how to express it. Like my brother, he's one of them. To this day, he has never opened up and spoken about it because, you know, I mean, now when you think of the LGBTQ community, it may be seen as... uh, an acceptance of coming out. Right. So back in the nineties, it was a fear of, Oh man, people are going to think I'm gay because this happened to me. And it's like, you know, at the end of the day, I don't, I don't give a shit. I know what I am. Um, that didn't change me for nothing. And I'm an open book, you know, and I've told my wife, I told my family, all this, I've recorded music about it and I've performed in front of churches talking about this because Regardless of the setting, regardless of where I'm at, I always tell my story, right? So the purpose behind that, and even with wrestling, my character is me, my life. The only difference is, one, I'm in spandex versus when I'm out of spandex, I'm the same person. You know, so the lockjaw character, when I say aggressive lifestyle, when I say warrior breed, it comes from a real place. These are not just two words I put together because they sounded cool. They look cool on paper. No, this is real. And, you know, not, you know, you figure six, seven years later, I'm joining uh, one of the most elite slash aggressive branches in our, in our country's military. So now they not only help enhance that level of aggression that was already built up inside of me, They showed me how to channel it. They showed me how to turn that switch on and and off. And out of all all jobs, the only job I qualified for was infantry. You know, so it's like, damn, am I not smart enough to be a a mechanic or or a officer or whatever? They said, listen, your job is infantry. Great. So you're going to take this kid with a lot of pent up anger. And you're going to put a gun in his hand. <laughs> great, great idea. Let's do that. But, um, and that, again, like I said, that's, that's just the reality of things. And I say it so freely because, one, it's not uncommon. And, two, I know there's a lot of people out there who find it very difficult to get, get past it. Um. And, and that's usually because they don't want to be judged, right? So when people think they know me from what they see on the, on Facebook or whatever, you're just getting a very small glimpse of whatever I'm dealing with that day. 
So if I'm in a goofy mood, you're going to get a goofy version of me. If I'm in a happy mood, I'm, you know, you're going to get that. You're not, you're not, that, that's, that's not even the, the, the main layer of, of who I actually am. You're, you know, you already know social media, people put on a front. However, me, I don't put on a front. You know, I don't hide my face from nobody. You know, when I speak on sensitive topics, I don't hide my face, you know, I don't uh, use the the stories of others to try to uh, get any kind of sympathy. This ain't a sympathy uh, talk. You know, when you go back, because uh, I've been doing rap music since I was in the church, you know, I would do gospel hip hop. And one of my very first songs was my testimony of my life. I actually recorded that over the Lose Yourself instrumental. So, and there, that was what, 2004? So you figure I've been writing my own music since 2004. I've been performing my own music uh, since 2007. So I've been telling this same story for well over 15, 16 years already. So anyone who knows me outside of the ring and outside of the business part of wrestling, uh, they'll tell you like, yeah, he's, I mean, I have his first CD that he ever recorded. I was there when he recorded his first song. And this was the same story that uh, that he told. And again, my mother's still alive. My mother is old school. She's not one of those that are going to say anything just for attention. No, mom, <laughs> mom don't need to, to do that. You know what I mean? Because I know you'll have some people say, oh, he's just using that to try to get, you know, sympathy. And nah. I'm the last one who who uh, does anything for sympathy. My wife will tell you that. My, my daughters will tell you that. I tell them all the time, listen, I'm raising you guys to be tough, independent women because the truth of the matter is the world, you know, life itself doesn't care what's between your legs. You know, it's <laughs> that's the one thing that will screw you over, whether you're a man, you're a woman, you're black, you're white, you're fat, you're skinny, you're young, you're old. It doesn't matter. Everyone gets... Uh, the short end of the stick at some point in life, right? So I try to prepare them for the worst so that should that worst actually come into reality, they know how to handle that. Um, and like I said, that's just how I was raised with the whole, you know, what happens if me and your mother pass? How are you guys going to survive? You know, that's how I was raised. So you figure, you know, 11, 12 years old, I'm learning how to cook and do my own laundry and, and, you know, iron my own clothes and all these other things. And it's like, now I understood why, uh, these lessons were being taught. And, you know, I, I try to make the best out of it and, and, and show those below me, you know, my daughters and stuff, how to, uh, get through it. Do you have any advice for people in the wrestling industry in particular? Because, mm -hmm. you know, everyone's coming to wrestling with their own challenges that they've dealt with in life. I mean, wrestling is notorious for being a place that technically, if you can, if you can uh, withstand the training, if somebody can vouch that, OK, he's all right, she's all right. They can be part of the club, so to speak. Right. Uh, outside of that, everybody's allowed in, you know, exactly. people from all works of life. And but that also means people who unfortunately have been through a lot of stuff too right you're a person who i can tell is not taking things out on others you're a person mm -hmm. who openly is able to speak about their trauma and and you utilize it in, in various positive ways including through your music right what what advice do you have for others on how they can cope with things in a similar manner and, and, and channel however they're feeling in, in, a, in a positive way, the way that you've been able to? Well, um, it's kind of like, it's very similar to uh, when you, when you first begin therapy, you know, you got to be able to first admit that there's an issue, right? So in this case, there needs to be an understanding that, okay, I've experienced these things in my life, you have to be willing and, and wanting to face it head on, right? Uh, a lot of people, they, they 
um, they shut down. And I think that's the worst thing you can do because when you shut down, you don't give anyone a chance to help you. You shut down, you, you become more guarded. And what happens is when you're in your own headspace, that's when all of the mental uh, breakdowns start to happen. You know, I don't want to live anymore. You know, why did this happen to me? Um, is it only me? You start second guessing yourself. Some people become not just uh, suicidal, but antisocial. They don't, you know, they have, they grow up um, having trust issues and things of that nature. So I would just say, you know, face it head on. You know, um, that's one of the hardest things to do is to face it head on because if you're in a, if you're in a situation where that person is still around you, whether it be family, whether it be a trainer, a worker, a promoter, you have to now address the situation. Um, me, my outlet, what I did, I did it through a public uh, outlet where I did music and then I put the music out for people to hear it. And then I performed it in a church. So even though that person wasn't there to witness that, they ended up hearing it later on or, or seeing it later on. So if they are in fear of that person being, you know, within the same vicinity as them, um, I mean, it's, it, it is tough because, you know, because what, what tends to happen, too, is you get the outsiders, right? Those who are cool with these people. Like I said with my story, how your own family was there and they knew of the situations that took place and they weren't there to not only help defend me and my brother, but my mother. You get what I'm saying? So it's like you guys are hanging out with a man who not only abused your little cousins, but your aunt. To the point where she was, she nearly died multiple occasions. Like I said, she has a fractured skull on top of many different things that she suffered at his hands. So if you guys can hang out with this person and, and not be the help, then there's a problem. And I, and I feel for a lot of the people who deal with this because it could be family very similar to me who have done something to them and the other family members don't believe them or they don't want to hear it or um, they're, they're too buddy buddy with that person. So that's where the whole anti-social, that's where the whole suicidal things tend to come into play because it's like, damn, who do I go to to help me through this situation when the people that are supposed to love and care for me are part of the problem, right? So the way I would, I would, I would do it, you know, I mean, I know it sucks um, and I'm not trying to, you know, be a tough guy or anything, but I would say um, rip the bandaid off. Um, the, the, the faster you are willing to say, you know what? I've been dealing with this five years, 10 years alone. I've been dealing with this in my head for so long alone not enough people are listening. Not enough people believe me. Let me just rip the bandaid off and face this person or this situation head on. And whatever happens, happens, you know, because at the end of the day, you've already put yourself through the mental uh, mind fuck, so to speak, where you've, you've alienated yourself. And again, that also comes from what you've experienced. You know, it's like, how how to push forward? Well, I've dealt with this on my own. Now it's time to let it out. And however people take it, it's, it's on them. But I need to I need to tell my story, right? So we look at interviews, whether it be wrestlers, whether it be uh, politicians, performers, entertainment figures. When you start to get to know them behind the scenes, and they start telling you their life story, and it's like, well. Look at what they did to overcome their situations and basically tell themselves that, look, we are more than a moment, right? So if you're dealing with something, you are not that moment forever. That's, that's a moment in time. So what you need to do is get past it. 
And if you feel that no one's going to listen, trust me, there's always one. If, if, if life has taught me anything, there's always one that'll listen. And now with um, whether it be Me Too movement, whether it be uh, Black Lives Matter, LGBT uh, communities, there's always somebody who's going to be your cheerleader, be your uh, support system. And I think that's one of the very few benefits that come with social media because you could turn a once traumatic and private situation and you can make it viral. And when you make it viral, now it becomes something that needs to be talked about uh, across the board on a more public level, right? So trauma is trauma, but it only gets fixed when it gets brought into the light, right? Because when you shine a light on something, people see it, people hear it. You can't see or hear anything if it's kept to yourself. You know, it's like how when we grow up, when they say closed mouths don't get fed. Well, the same thing goes for wanting to get past traumatic situations in life. When you are able to tell your story out loud, whether it's to one person, to two people, before you know it, you're able to say it more frequently. You're able to own it and say, you know what, I'm, I'm not 1999. I'm not, you know, 2012. I'm not this. I'm, those were moments. You are more than a moment. Anyone listening, if, if they want to get in touch with you, Danny, and, and, you know, just feed off your energy, so to speak, whether it be uh, pro wrestling, real life, the whole nine yards, what's the best way people can keep up with you? Uh, my Facebook, uh, Danny Cruz on Facebook, uh, as far as wrestling goes, I have my, uh, many pages. I have at real lock jaw, the number seven on Facebook and Instagram. I have, uh, my tag team page, uh, real art of war, the number 17, um, my company warrior breed wrestling on Facebook and Instagram as well. Um, and like I said, you know, outside of the wrestling stuff, you know, even though I mostly portray and put out and promote wrestling stuff, you can always reach out to me and say, Hey Danny, you know, I, I want to talk to you about something not wrestling related. Even if it is on my fan page, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, inbox you from the Lockjaw page talking about life, you know? So don't think that because I'm giving you wrestling related pages that you can't talk about whatever you feel you want to talk about and trust me with. You know, because that's that's the other thing. Like, I try to give people a sense of comfort, knowing that, look, you're not the only one. You know, I know a lot of people who have told me their own personal experiences and how similar their lives are to mine. So the last thing I want to do is uh, not give them the freedom to speak however they feel they need to speak. You know, um, my platform, I chose to vocalize it uh, through music. And then I you know, try to apply it within my wrestling character, you know, and like I said earlier, you know, when I say aggressive lifestyle and I say warrior breed and people ask, you know, why those words? And it's like, well, it, it, it stems from my life story. So when you're looking at Lockjaw, you're not just looking at a guy dressed as a pit bull. You're looking at Danny in spandex because that's his actual life that he's put into this character. And that's pretty much one of the reasons why, I, I wanted to uh, get into wrestling other than, you know, being rich and famous and being this big superstar. I wanted to be able to reach people, you know, be able to tell my story to help people. Uh, like, like you said, you know, how, how do we help these people get past it? I think when enough people are willing to rip the bandaid off and tell their story, it helps others. You know, it always starts with one. There always has to be that one who's willing to risk it all and then wait for the reactions and the feedback of others. And when others who have had similar upbringings to me see that, wow, he's gone through a lot, his family's gone through a lot, and he's still kicking. Let me try it now. Let me see how that works out for me. And then when they do it, they may be able to help somebody who's watching them. And before you know it, it's no longer um, something that should be held and, and kept to themselves. 
Let's talk hydration. See, I carry something to drink with me every single place that I go because I am concerned about being dehydrated. It runs in the family. Everything from dry mouth, dizzy spells, fainting, it's pretty serious. And I've tried all the different types of waters and sports drinks. Let me tell you something right now. Liquid IV. That has been the most efficient at keeping me hydrated and doing so pretty quickly. Okay, Liquid IV has five essential vitamins and is two times faster at keeping you hydrated than water alone. And I'm serious, man. Everything from vitamin C to vitamins B3, B5, B6, B12. Liquid IV also is non-GMO. So it's free from gluten, dairy, soy. So for all you folks out there with food allergies, this may be right up your alley. And I know what you're thinking, but how does it taste, Duke? Well, it tastes pretty good. Okay, we're talking my favorite in pina colada. They also have tropical punch, strawberry, new flavors like sea berry and strawberry lemonade. Huh. You can enjoy this stuff, man. But don't take my word for it. I want you to stop what you're doing right now and head over to liquidiv.com. Use the promo code Duke Loves Wrestling so you get 20% off your entire order. I mean, anything that you order on liquidiv.com. So what are you waiting for? It's time for you to shop better hydration today. Use the promo code Duke Loves Wrestling over at liquidiv.com. Save yourself 20%. Stay hydrated. Most importantly, enjoy life. That's right. Now let's get on with the show. It is La Princesa Tiffany Nieves. I am the OVW Women's Champion, the Mission Pro Women's Champion, and most likely your favorite promotional next future women's champion. And you're listening to Duke Loves Wrestling. As always, folks, be kind to yourselves and be kind to others. Take it away, Tony Schiavone. This is Tony Schiavone, and we're definitely out of time on Duke Love Wrestling. 